0: All right. Good morning, church. Is that a little loud? Good morning. morning. Okay. So, if you guys want to turn in your Bibles this morning, whether it's paper or digital, we're going to be operating out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, This is following Luke 24, preceding John chapter 2, John chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody got it? Hopefully I solved enough. If not, I think we have it on the screen. So that's great as well. All right. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. He didn't just appear among us, but he lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The two big paradigms of Jesus' ministry, grace and truth. John just testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That power that's in you, that's the grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God as God the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known a good word, right? It's a good word. It's a lot, but it's kind of the origin story, if you will, uh, the grand narrative that describes this journey that we're on together as a church. It summarizes all the fine points. It captures who this person of Christ was, and it also gives some tidbits of what it looks like for us to also be intentional incarnational presences in our own Unities. So last Sunday, Pastor Justin kicked off our new fall series titled, Who Are We? The series covers a series of six attributes. I believe it's six, right? I'm not skipping on that. Uh, six attributes that describe how Love Chapel Hill carries out its mission to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. And these attributes come from Christ's life. They come from Christ's work. They are qualities and characteristics that we find in scripture about Christ and they are qualities and characteristics that we put on through our relationship with Christ. The first in the series of attributes is what we are calling intentional incarnation. You probably saw it up on the slide up there, and that's what we're going to be starting with today. Now, uh, because I'm getting into this whole uh, middle school teacher thing, so I'm trying to foster audience participation. You know, participation is a grade in school. Do y'all ever have that? Maybe? No? We're going to work on this throughout the day. So how many of you have heard about this wonderful mystery called the Incarnation? Show of hands, head nods, anything? Okay, so we got, we got some head nods, we got some hands. Who is hearing about the Incarnation for the first time? You can raise your hand if you want to. If you're shy, you don't have to. Okay, great, great, great. Now, who has heard about the Incarnation, but is also wondering about how the reality of Christ's incarnate life, Christ's putting on flesh life, applies to how we live our lives today. Great, everyone's really practical minded, so we're gonna have some fun this morning. I get to talk about Christology and you guys get to listen. Who, who, who doesn't love that? I promise, it'll be practical. All right, so if I were to sum up our time together this morning, let's go ahead and do a thesis statement. I'm teaching English, we're doing, we're doing thesis statements. If I were to sum up our time together this morning, we could likely put it in these words in the prologue to John's gospel. The word became flesh and lived among us. That's the incarnation. The word became flesh and lived among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson uses a translation that says, uh, summarizing, Jesus Christ moved into the neighborhood. He was very present among us, and it was very intentional, the way that he chose to be among us, the time in history that he chose to be among us, the communities that he chose to be a part of, uh, where he spent his leisure time, very intentional. So altogether, the Word became fleshed and lived among us. This is good news, in case you didn't know. It's very good news. Full stop. There's so much that we can unpack, and there's so much that Christians have unpacked throughout the ages. After all, this is the marvelous mystery at the core of our faith, that Christ dwelt among us. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And that we've been made new through his life, death, and resurrection. But perhaps we need a little bit more of the backstory to help us grasp why. Christ's incarnation, or Christ's enfleshment, or putting on flesh, is such good news. So, as I was putting this message together, I really appreciated the way Bonaventure, okay, I know, it's nerdy, a 13th century Bible nerd who wrote extensively about the mysteries of the Christian faith and our own spiritual formation, I was interested in how he talks about the incarnation, mostly because it's very poetic. Sometimes you have people talking about the incarnation and it looks like a handbook, right? It's, it's, like, a, it's like an owner's manual for a car. You, you're, you're just trying to parse through the information to figure out what is relevant, right? But Bonaventure has, has a different type of twist to it. So I'm gonna kind of share his summary for you guys today, mostly because it's better than whatever I could come up on my own. So one of the themes that Bonaventure brings up over and over again, Is the idea that it is supremely fitting, it is most appropriate, that God should be the one to redeem us from our sins, and that it was also supremely fitting that God should accomplish this work by putting on human flesh. Okay, essentially Bonaventure begins by retelling the story of salvation by stating that God does not put himself in a bind, so to speak, where he has to become incarnate. Instead, whatever God does to bring out the salvation of humanity is intentional. It's because he's choosing to do it. God could have chose to redeem humanity any other way, but he thought it would be most fitting for us in our spiritual journeys to become incarnate, to become God putting on flesh and dwelling among among us. So there is purpose in God's work. That's point number one. Then poetically, Bonaventure continues writing, just as God the Father had created all things through the uncreated word, the word before he becomes flesh, so he would restore all things through the incarnate word, the word putting on flesh. See, see what he's doing there with the word? Uh, everything's coming into existence through the word, and everything's being redeemed through the word. Very cool. Think to the prologue of John where we read together uh, in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning of John's gospel captures this truth for us, connecting the dots for us. John introduces us to the very same Word of God that creates all things in the beginning and enters into human history at a certain time in human history as Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word. Everyone following so far? Okay, good, this is making sense, I'm glad. So again, the word creates all and the word restores all, and John's giving us all of this in chapter one. Pretty artistic, right? Almost sounds intentional, doesn't it? So building upon this theme of fittingness or appropriateness, what is best in God's mind, our guide, Bonaventure, offers us another thought. Because God made everything with complete power, complete wisdom, complete goodness, it was fitting that God should restore all things as to display that same power, wisdom, and goodness. And then he asked the question that has caused so many Christians to marvel at God's work, both throughout the world and throughout the ages. What is more wise or fitting or intentional, for our sake, than to unite the origin of all created things with the last of all creatures? So if you remember Genesis one, human beings aren't uh, human beings are the last of God's creation. They were created on that last day before God rested. And what is more good than the one who is above all things to humble himself intentionally, putting on the form of a servant, that is, human flesh, in order to save us from the turmoil of our sins. You can kind of begin to hear Philippians 2, uh, the Philippian hymn, one of the great hymns that the Christians had been singing from arguably the start of the church. Uh, Christ's humility in putting on flesh was one of the core truths that bound their communities together. So anyways, in Genesis 3, the first humans disobeyed God sending creation into a cosmic tailspin. Bonaventure, again, describes the matter much more beautifully and poetically than I can, and practically, writing, When human beings sinned, they turned away and wandered from their most powerful, wise, and good God. Those three uh, attributes that we talked about earlier, wise, powerful, and good. As a result, they fell headlong into weakness, ignorance, malice, weakness, ignorance, malice, things that we have to deal with in our daily lives to overcome. Having once been spiritual, they became carnal, became animal, sensual. They could no longer imitate divine virtue, know its light or love its goodness. And so the most fitting way for human beings to be raised from this condition was for God to come down onto our level by making himself knowable, by making himself lovable, and making himself imitatable. Imitable? Imitatable? We'll figure it out later. Bear with me. Essentially, in our previous way of being, we could not know, love, or imitate what was not like us, right? And then there's this idea that God is somehow completely other. You know, he's he's, He's different from us, he's good, he's perfect. And who are we as human beings? Who are we as creatures? In our previous way of being, we could not know, love, or imitate what was not like us. Enter the story of the Old Testament and what follows after. Specifically, enter Israel's long history of forsaking God's covenant to follow man-made idols. Enter the human shortcomings of several Old Testament heroes because they didn't have a living example to imitate. Enter the histories of God's people along the rest of the world trying to wrap their imaginations around this magnificent thing called love that we had ideas about but we didn't really know about until we saw its power modeled for us in the flesh. There's so much that comes to us because we, we see what is possible through Jesus Christ. He shows us how to live, and he shows us what life can look like in his life. And so, the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. Our intentionally incarnate Lord put on flesh so that he might be known and loved and imitated by human beings who were in the flesh, so that humanity might be cured of the disease of sin that was in our flesh. The thing we always call original sin. The thing that keeps holding us back. The thing that was overcome by Christ. So the final movement of Bonaventure's paraphrase is this. Human beings could not be completely healed unless they regained innocence of mind, friendship with God, and their proper excellence, whereby, they were subject only to God. Or they were subject only to God. Their priorities were being renewed. Once again, because this work could only be accomplished by God, the word of God put on flesh. If a mere mortal, if you or I were to lay down our lives for another, it might be a noble act, right? It might be a noble act on our part, but it wouldn't be redemptive for the whole human race. It needed to be accomplished by a mediator, so to speak. One who could touch God with one hand and humanity with the other hand. Who would be in the likeness and friend of both. God-like in his divinity and like us in his humanity. Someone who could bridge the gap for us. The intentionally incarnate Lord was the best person to lead us and the best person to finally redeem us, to set history on a new trajectory through his saving work on the cross, where he pours out his life so that we might have life and we might have it to the full. So the redemptive work that we have encountered in Christ is this. And maybe this, maybe this is like an audience participation thing. We'll, we'll, we'll repeat it a couple of times just so you guys have something to say that you learned today. So... Here we go. So, we are set free from the guilt, the power, and the nature of sin. You guys want to repeat that? We are set free from the guilt, the power, and the nature of sin. We'll repeat it again. We are set free from the guilt, the power, and the nature of sin, and we are set free to love God, love neighbor, and walk in obedience all right, let's repeat that second part, we are set free to love God, love neighbor, and walk in obedience. So the whole thing, we are set free from the guilt, the power, and the nature of sin, and we are set free to love God, love neighbor, and walk in obedience. Great, you guys have learned some theology today. Uh, Be proud. It's great. So at last, Bonaventure gives us this brief way of thinking about the purpose of Christ's incarnation work that he came to accomplish. Just as the human race came into being through the uncreated word and sinned by failing to heed the inspired word, the the Old Testament scriptures, so it would rise from sin through the incarnate word. So, again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, another notable person in Christian history, someone who's paved the way for a lot of the way that we do Christology talk or the way we talk about Christ, even in the church today, uh, is Cyril of Alexandria. He was in the 4th century. Uh, He has many valuable meditations on the incarnation and what it means to be an intentional incarnation, uh, which are found in this little book called The Unity of Christ. It's pretty good stuff. If you want to check it out, I would recommend it. Um, If you need help figuring it out, let me know. We'll have, we'll have some talks. So I want to pull two quotes from Cyril for you this morning, especially the ones that pack a real punch. First, Cyril writes, In this way, meaning the incarnation, uh, Christ saved his own people not as a man conjoined to God, not like a demagogue in demigod in the Greek sense, but as God who has come into the likeness of those who were in danger, so that in him, first of all, the human race might be refashioned to what it was in the beginning. Through Christ's work, we are being brought back to our original created state, in a way. In Christ, all things became new. And you have some echoes of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation, then he uh, goes on and he's commenting on Christ's baptism. And this is one of the interesting things about Cyril. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just kind of nerding out here for a little bit. Uh, he, he really highlights the significance of uh, the Holy Spirit coming on Christ at his baptism. And he's thinking to himself, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't really need to come on Christ because, you know, Christ is God. Uh, like, what, what is all this happening? Christ already has the full presence of the Holy Spirit with him. And he comes to this point, and it it has a lot to say about our spiritual formation, uh, our pursuit of Christ, our growth in relationship with Christ. He says, this is why Christ became the first one to be born of the Holy Spirit. It was so that he could trace a path for grace to come to us. If the Holy Spirit is the one who's working grace in our life, the one who is doing the work of redemption in our life, the Holy Spirit comes on Christ, not as a way to say that Christ needed the Holy Spirit in the same that we need the Holy Spirit, but because it was appropriate in modeling that we need the Holy Spirit, and we need this in order to pursue Christ-likeness. So, moving on. So our little focus statement, uh, we need to be transformed by God's grace if we want to live like Jesus, if we want to be impactful presences in our community if we want to demonstrate Christ's self-giving love, if we want to walk in step with the Spirit in our daily lives. Christ's self-giving love, if we want to walk in step with the Spirit, Notice that when John draws our attention to whose power is really fueling our work, if we think back to our initial passage, uh, when John's talking about the power. It is the word made flesh who gave us power to become children of God. And this is made possible through the incarnation, through Christ's life. And when we are born of God because of God's work, it's not our own. When we were talking about bearing the marks of Christ's life, Christ's intentional and purposeful life. We are not talking about practices on their own or a vision of transformation that we could make possible on our own. It, you know, we, we, we could walk the aisles of Barnes and Noble and find several books to the tune of this. Uh, in the self-improvement aisle, you know, you, you could find the same thing for talking about the well-ordered society. You know, you, you, you could find the same thing uh, if you're looking for hospitality and what it means to be welcoming. You know, we, we can find books and such that get us to these specific practice. The point is that there is a power that Christ enables in our lives to intentionally carry out his mission. but power power also has maybe some negative connotations today, and i want to I want to I address that real quick. So I want to make a quick note about power. Today, power is a loaded term. We can think about the abuse of power. We can think about the misuse of power by authority figures. We think about systems of power that leave negative impressions on our lives and the lives of our neighbors. we might even think about the droves of sci-fi and fantasy movies that highlight the special abilities or unique powers of certain individuals and their stewardship of those powers. Right? Uh, my guess is that you could probably finish this saying if I begin it. Uh, with great power comes There we go. Audience participation. you guys are getting it. We'll, we'll have something good by the end of the day. So when we turn to the term "power" as it is used in John, though, we're thinking about something different. The power that God gives us is good. It's necessary. It's a power that God gives to our souls and enables us to participate in Christ's life to be able to actually imitate Christ's life, to love Christ, to do all of these things. The power is what we call grace. Grace is the special and unearned gift of God to us so that we might live a life of godliness. And catch this. To participate in Christ's life, a transformation needs to take place at the core of our lives. I'll say it again. To participate in Christ's life, a transformation needs to take place at the core of our lives. This is what we mean when we speak about God's grace and God's grace working in us. We mean that the gift of Christ's life is working in us and through us and gradually shaping us day by day by day by day. And even when you thought it was over, by day by day by day, by day, into the image and likeness of Christ. So moving on from Bonaventure and Cyril and all these great things, uh, we could take several inroads to talk about the specific ways that Christ chose to model as he dwells among us on earth. You know, and based on what we see in Scripture about the life and work of Christ and the various ways New Testament authors have written about his ministry, we truthfully have a lot of takeaway lessons that we could gain from reading about Christ's life. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. It's literally like a handbook, and it has dozens upon dozens upon dozens of meditations about what it looks like to embody Christ's life in our lives. So we have a lot of options before us, and truthfully, some of you will resonate better with some aspects of Christ's life and work than others, and that is great. You might prefer Christ's example of retreating into prayer, or you might value the impact of being with people and sharing the good news through your relationships with others. Or you might prefer Christ's intentional commitment to the truth as an example for our pursuit of truth. Or you might prefer Christ's intentional ministry of compassion We can all find bits and pieces of Christ's life that speak to us, and this is part of the beauty of the metaphorical but very real body of Christ. The hands, the feet, the arms, the legs are all working together to make Christ's kingdom mission possible. So to help us along, I'm going to probably give us a 30,000-foot approach. Uh, partly because we have libraries worth of people meditating on formative, the formative elements of Christ's life. You know, we could be here for days, uh, and they have many practices worth following. Also, not to keep you past lunch today, I want us to focus on two soul shifts. Uh, soul shifts. Uh, I feel like that would be probably the best approach. Uh, two soul shifts that model Christ's for us, that Christ models for us, and invites us to pattern in our lives as well. So part one, part one, has to do with Christ's posture of presence. Part one, presence. Part two has to do with our church's name, love. Presence and love. So let's get into part one. Whether you've been living at, whether you've been living at Chapel Hill, uh, or whether you wherever you call home right now, I guess. Uh, Whether it's for 10-plus years, for three years, for one year, for one month, or maybe even one week. Uh, We know that some of you might be new-new to Chapel Hill in the area. I want you to think about when you first arrived in the place you call home. This is another audience participation bit. Okay. We're going to practice together. Think about when you first arrived in the place you now call home. I'm gonna guess for some of you that it's here in Chapel Hill. So we're gonna use this as an example. Uh, what was it like when you first pulled off I-40 for the first time? You first veered off the highway and you're making your way towards campus. What was that like? Just think, think to yourself. What was it like when you were driving up the massive hill towards Franklin Street? I, I, I can remember the first time I, I did that. What was it like when you first found Chapel Hill's campus? And then, what were you thinking to yourself as you were getting into this town, or wherever you called home? How were you feeling about all the new stimuli as you ventured forth into the the new spaces, as you're seeing all the new sites, all the new faces, trying to take it all in? All right, let those impressions sink in for a little bit. Now, What was your experience like after a few months of living in Chapel Hill or Durham or Raleigh or wherever you're at? How was your experience now? How how, how was your experience after you had gotten acclimated? If I were to guess, if I were to guess, this is just an imaginative exercise. You've probably learned the ins and outs of the city. You know where to eat, which roads to take, at different times of the day. If you're a student, then you probably know where you need to go to get your work done, and you know where to go when you're ready to relax. Even when you, uh, you even know where to go, I'm guessing, to support your beloved, and I'm going to pause for a deep sigh here, uh, your beloved Tar Heels. I come from across the interstate, I'm sorry. It's an empathic uh, engagement and experience we're having today. Anyways, bear with me. After a certain amount of time in this place, we can easily find ourselves caught in the routine, the everyday, or the mundane. The places that were once exhilarating and awe-inspiring to our eyes are now becoming humdrum and lackluster. We've gotten used to the places where we've lived. It's not as magical as when we first arrived. Does that sound accurate to anybody? Maybe whether here or wherever you've been before. So why did we go down this rabbit trail, you ask? My guess is that it's easier for us to be fully and intentionally present in a space that is fresh and mysterious, as opposed to when we have gotten accustomed to our routines. When a place is fresh, our minds are constantly attentive. We're constantly taking it in. My guess is that there is a difference in the way we live in a space when we're getting used to a new place where we're seeing innumerable possibilities or opportunities for mission, for community, for daily life, than when we've settled into our day-to-day tasks. To put it more simply and clearly, because we need that, right, it's Sunday morning. It's easier for us to practice presence when our imaginations are getting acclimated or accustomed to new places and spaces. We take advantage of different opportunities in our communities, from residence hall events to school clubs to local outreach opportunities, maybe even coming to Love Chapel Hill, to explore what's out there. And every new face could be a new best friend or a future colleague or a co-laborer, and every new space could be a place where you become a regular, where you get to know the stories of the people in your community and purposefully walk alongside of others who need the hope and life of Christ. You have a different way of seeing the communities where you live. Perhaps this sounds a bit like a tall order, especially if you're an introvert who would probably prefer to practice presence alone with your books in the library. Getting to know everyone and their brother You know, can seem... Uh, well, and spend money that you probably don't have at local businesses. This sounds like a little bit much, right? Uh, yeah. Any college students, college students in the room feel that? Different ways of practicing presence? Anyways, I laughed on the inside. <laughs> don't get me wrong though, the call to practice presence to model Christ's purposeful and intentional incarnate life in our lives starts with the way we imagine the places and spaces where we live. It's a soul shift, so to speak, where we ask the Holy Spirit to help us see our neighbors and our neighborhoods as he sees them. It's a process of relearning how we see the world around us. So, G.K. Chesterton describes this mode of being present like entering into a fairy tale story. And I always like this analogy. He, he calls us to think with a new imagination. He says, you know, when when you enter a fairy story, a tree isn't just a tree, but it's a magical tree. The stream isn't flowing because it's simply running down a hill, but because it's bewitched. Interesting, right? He gives us two convictions about how Christians might see the world First, that this world is a wild and startling place, which might have been quite different, but is quite delightful in the way that it is. And second, that before this wildness and delight, one may be modest and submit to the strangest limitations of so strange a kindness. What he's essentially trying to get at in all of this is that we come to see the world as just normal. And there's almost something wrong with that. When we just think of our day-to-day lives as the humdrum, as the lackluster, it's hard to be surprised, you know? We've, we've trained ourselves on what to expect. Another thought, uh, C.S. Lewis says something similar in talking about the miracle of the person in front of you, or perhaps the one sitting right beside of you. You have never met a mere mortal, he says. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Let let that sink in Just just a second. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses right now in this space in the Varsity Theater. If he is your Christian neighbor... He is holy in almost the same way, for in him, Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Christ is truly hidden. But to see the world and our neighbors in such a way requires the grace of God, enabling us to see as we ought to see. Grace does more than just retrain our actions. It also helps us view the world as God wants us to view the world. Now, we won't see fully as we ought to in this life, but we can see to an extent in this life because of Christ's redemptive work. I just thought I'd throw in that note. So St. Thomas Aquinas left his readers with this piece of advice for the preachers he was training in Paris in the 13th century. He encouraged them to always see themselves as beginners. It's a way to kind of humble you a a little bit, right? We have people with uh, multiple degrees in the room. You want to think you're a little bit advanced. You want to think you're mature. I certainly do. But Aquinas says one of the ways you can kind of get to this space is if you think of yourself as a beginner. So what is the profile of a present beginner? A beginner who practices presence. In a word, it's to to be a present beginner is to be constantly surprised. We are constantly surprised by what God is attempting to do in our communities. We're constantly surprised by how his scripture speaks to us in different seasons of life. We're constantly surprised by how much God has to teach us even now as we're living our day-to-day lives. So here we go, another exercise in audience participation. Are you guys enjoying the audience participation? You can lie, it's fine, you won't hurt my feelings. Or say the truth. I guess that's why you wouldn't hurt my feelings. Anyways, moving on. So let's think about Christ's life together for a moment. Specifically, imagine that you're one of Christ's disciples who is doing life with Christ. How cool, right? Alright, let's, let's put ourselves in that space. What are you doing with Christ as, as you're thinking? Where are you with Christ in your imagination right now? Maybe you're imagining yourself traveling back in time to meet the 12 disciples. Or maybe you're imagining Christ here with you in Chapel Hill. Maybe maybe you're thinking about where you would be in town. Either of those is okay. Now, turn to your neighbor. Yes, we're going to turn to our neighbors now. Uh, turn to your neighbor. Tell them where you see yourself with Christ. And Go. Alright, everybody share? Thumbs up if you shared. Alright, alright. Next two questions. Is Christ where you expected him to be? Is Christ where you expected him to be? And is Christ who you expected him to be with? We're thinking location and people. Is Christ where you expected him to be? And is he with who you expected him to be with? Yes or no to your neighbor? Uh, What do you think? All right, and then coming back, you're maybe feeling a sense of surprise by this exercise, and you would be right to do so. So many times in the New Testament, the gospel writers give us snapshots of Jesus practicing intentional presence in the places where we wouldn't think he would go the places that we wouldn't expect God in the flesh to go. For instance, as a a child, Jesus' parents finally find him in the temple speaking about the scriptures with his teachers. Not where you expect him to be. When Jesus is at the well in Samaria, he talks to a woman that his disciples expected Jesus would avoid. When a despoiled tax collector spots Jesus in the crowd and asks for forgiveness, Jesus declares that he's hanging out with this brother in Christ, the OG brother in Christ, right, for dinner that night. His disciples didn't expect this type of grace, this type of presence. So the beginning of our grace-fueled pursuit of intentional Christ-like presence in our communities, we'll start with our spirit-filled sense of surprise that opens our heart to the transforming work that God wants to accomplish in our communities. It starts with a spirit-filled sense of surprise. Paul says uh, in a couple of verses, just so we can build some repertoire around this, uh, Paul says, in one Corinthians two fourteen through sixteen, those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of the God Spirit, for they are foolish to them and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. And then here is the piece: but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Philippians two five. Let this be. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, if the mind of Christ. Romans 8, 5 through 6. For they that are in the flesh do not mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and Peace. And Colossians 127, uh to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ's life, Christ's mind is in you. It's for us. So in case you've missed it, Christ's life is in you. In Christ we see the world differently than when we were in bondage to sin, and we bear or we embody a different kind of presence because we are gradually putting on Christ's life. As we pursue Christ, we gain a different type of presence about us. All right, part two. I I told you guys I was getting to part two, right? Yeah, you guys know, you guys know. Part two, Christ-like presence is no ordinary presence. Can we agree on that? Christ's presence is not an ordinary presence. Christ-like presence is a presence modeled through his posture of self-giving love. Getting back to our name, self-giving love. You might say that Christ's presence was the tip of the iceberg, where love is the foundation. Presence is what we see, love is what's fueling it. When we think about presence, we might also humbly recognize that that we are not all-knowing in the sense that Christ was all-knowing in his intentionally incarnate life. Rather, Christ gives us instruction on what it means to be present. He says, the world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. The world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. It's not a love of good feelings or well-wishing towards others. Instead, the love that Christ demonstrates in his life and death and calls us to imitate is a sacrificial, self-giving love that knows humility very, 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 very well. At the end of John's Gospel, the author does something very interesting. He too seems to be asking the question, who are we, the title of our series. So as Jesus breathes his last upon the cross. The place where we find the greatest expression of his sacrificial love, a love that the word who put on flesh tells his disciples about a few chapters earlier in John fifteen thirteen, when he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has had greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Backtracking. John records Pontius Pilate saying these words, Behold the man. Behold the man. Pontius Pilate, as Jesus is breathing his last, says, Behold the man. Why is this significant? Well, my friends, this is the wonderful thing about exegesis and why cool people keep handing us down these nerdy things about how Scripture is working with itself. So, what does this mean? At the beginning of the message, I directed our attention to how the first chapter of John's gospel looks a lot like the first chapter of Genesis. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Anyways, it looks a lot like the first chapter of Genesis, where we see some of those creation bits of language seeping through. So in both cases, we are looking at our origin story, and like any good origin story, we get a sense of who the person is and the trajectory of who the person is becoming. So in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 27, it gives us a snapshot of God's creation of humans within the larger creation narrative. We're the ones who were created last in the order, it's fine. We, we're we still pretty great in God's eyes. Anyways, speaking his purposes into existence, God says, Let's, let us make humankind in our image. Let us make humankind in our image. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the wild animals of the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So, God created humankind in his image. Pretty cool, right? It's a wonderful thing to know that we are created in God's image, of course, but we realize that our life is, because we realize that our life is precious, and that our life is purposeful. We get a sense of that despite our intentions. God is intentional about us. Despite our intentions, God is intentional about us. But there's something else hidden in this much-loved passage, and it's hidden in the grammar. Oh, man, you guys know I'm an English teacher because we're talking about grammar. When the author of Genesis is giving us this word writing, let us make humankind in our image, the phrase, let us make, is written in an imperfect tense. Anyone know what the tenses are and stuff? Y'all, y'all remember this from grammar? Okay, cool, I, I see like two hands. You guys, I'm proud, I'm proud. So if you're not intrigued by grammar and assume that most of you are not based on the dazed expressions on your wonderful faces, let me help translate. So our creation in God's image is something that happens and is happening, that's what's kind of being used in this case of the imperfect tense. So God accomplishes the work, but the work is not final. We are created in the image of God, but somehow there's something more. The story isn't finished. Go figure. The first humans that dwell in the garden with God were not meant to be static. That's something that we traditionally believe. They were meant for more. They were designed to grow in their relationship with God, but then pride stepped in, and a lack of faith distorted their vision. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, then, is a narrative of people who are longing for God's presence. Finally, God's presence is literally with his people in Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal begotten Son of God, who intentionally put on flesh and dwelt intentionally among us, is making this presence possible. When John draws attention to Pilate's words, behold the man, he is trying to trigger his audience's scriptural imagination from Genesis 1. Apparently that's how a lot of these authors would write. They would include key phrases so that it would jumpstart their imaginations. Namely, the work that God began in his creation of human beings is completed in Christ's sacrificial love on the cross. Truly, Christ's self-giving love reveals what it means to be fully human. The making process that is begun in Genesis 1 finds its fulfillment in Christ. Christ teaches us what it means to be fully human. Christ's love also demonstrates how we ought to live in our daily lives. When we show up, we show up bearing the love of Christ that permeates our lives. It's not something that we can manufacture for our own lives. We can't just take bits and pieces. As John tells us in chapter 1, only God can give us the power to live and to love like we ought to. And this occurs, or as this occurs, God shapes us into the image of Christ. Isaiah poetically says, puts it in, uh, in chapter Isaiah 64, verse 8. He says, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. I'll say it again. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. And you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's grace. So wrapping up, uh, this morning we talked about one of our first core values in this series. In answering the question, who are we at Love Chapel Hill? And I think it's strategic that we're talking about Christ first and foremost, that Christ is where we're anchoring ourselves in this series. Our life in Christ is the source of everything that we do, and when our life and work is rooted in Christ, our love filled presence becomes truly transformative when christ appears in the community he is intentional about the places that he occupies he is fully present in those spaces you think you know christ christ listens to people's stories he eats with them he prays with them he embraces teachable moments with them he serves them he mourns with them and much, much more. There are some things you can't do, or should I say you can't do well without intentional presence, without being intentionally embodied in our own lives. We also discuss what drives our Christ-like presence, and this is the love of Christ, alive and at work in our hearts. When we speak about modeling Christ's life, one is bound to the other, intentional and love, or our intentional presence and love go hand in hand. Love is not just a means to an end, to have a more effective presence in our communities, to have a more effective ministry or anything else. People of love is who we are called to be. It's the core of who we are. And you are made made in the image of likeness of God. And John, I call him Papa John when we get to First John, you know, like first, second, third John, old John. He's been around for a little while. Papa John, in First John four sixteen, insists God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's who we are. That's what we're called to do: to abide in God. So as we go out, I want to leave you with two imperatives or next steps that go along with our soul shifts. The first is this, know that God is on the move. Know that God is on the move here in Chapel Hill, in Durham, in the classroom, at the hospital, wherever you're at. God is wanting to do something in places where you live, where you work, where you enjoy your hobbies, and your company with friends. I think specifically to where I'm at in the school where I work, there's a there's a poster on one of the office windows right as you turn to go check in, in the office in the morning. And it's a uh, it's a poster from The Chronicles of Narnia, and on the poster it has this caption Aslan is on the move. First of all, has anyone like, seen the Narnia movies or read the Narnia books? Show of hands, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about, Aslan is on the move. So it's from the Chronicles of Narnia, and the, the line that surrounds this goes a little bit like this. I think it's Mr. Beaver talking. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened among them. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment that the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. There's something about knowing that God is on the move where we are that uh, it, it, it gets us going in a much different way. So this is meant to represent the truth that God is present in everything that we do and that he is working in all things toward a good and redemptive end. God's work is doing something here. It's one of those truths that, you know, as, as you go through your day, you can't help but think that God is present and active where you work. So anyways, know that God is on the move and let the sense of surprise fuel how you are present with others. You are Christ's ambassadors. Second point, next step, uh, way of carrying these things out. Or actually... Let's, let's do this. So more specific to Chapel Hill, just to give you some concrete examples, because apparently concrete examples help, right? I like to think in concrete examples. We might think about our intentional location in the heart of this city, when we want to think about uh, what it means to be an embodied presence. So specific to Chapel Hill, we might want to think about our intentional location. When Love Chapel Hill started meeting, before my time personally, And I thank Justin for some of these takeaways because, you know, it's very helpful in grounding these uh, for our church community. So when Love Chapel Hill started meeting before my time, our church was meeting at the well on UNC's campus. Who knows where the well is? Historic well. It's like on all of the postcards, you can't miss it. Even if you don't go to Chapel Hill, you know what the well is, just saying. It's the historic center of the Chapel Hill community. And if we were to think about how Chapel, if we if we think about Chapel Hill as our home, as a metaphor, uh, we might think of the old well as our atrium. You know, it's it's, it's where we're starting out. Uh, it's, it has a lot of symbolic meaning. And if the well is the atrium, then maybe Franklin Street is our hallway, leading to different buildings and businesses that serve as classrooms for learning and meeting spaces for investing in relationships. And if we think about our church's figurative living room you know in chapel hill right then we might think about the houses parks and various spaces where we gather to share life at a deeper level in those living rooms now if you thought to yourself wow this church seems to be all over chapel hill uh, that's because it is right Um, you are the church and you carry the hope and life of christ wherever you are present So in the mode of being present in our community, it also means that we are attuned to the rhythms and the stories of this college town. Its struggles are our struggles, its victories are our victories. Plain as that. So second thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. The second is this, continue to pursue a relationship with God second next step is really simple. Continue to pursue a relationship with God. As you pursue the Father, the Spirit will form you into the likeness of Christ through the gift of God's grace. We're all on a journey where we're all beginners, right? We're always growing into the likeness of Christ. It's what we call sanctification, and it's quite the process if you haven't figured it out already. The refining process is something else. We primarily pursue this relationship on a day-to-day basis through prayer and scripture. You all know that? We, we, we pursue this relationship between prayer and scripture. The character of God that we find in scripture inspires our prayers, and the one who we encounter in our prayers continually reveals himself in his word. These are two great vehicles that we have to grow in a relationship with Christ. The third, you could argue, is our intentional gatherings with one another, either on Sunday mornings throughout the week, our ability to do life together and grow with God in that way. So as we pursue this marvelous relationship with God, he accomplishes the work of love in our lives that we could never accomplish on our own. It's his power, not ours. You are made in the image of God and consequently made in the image of love who put on flesh. As a person of love, you all, as a person of love, not just Love Chapel Hill, but love in general, Pursue the one who teaches us how to love. So now we want to move into a time of communion. Uh, So if whoever's serving wants to come up, that'd be great. So one of the ways that Jesus Christ imagined his people remembering and being shaped by his life was to participate in a common meal among his followers. The center of the communion meal is the bread and the cup that represents Christ's sacrificial love for us so that he could transform us all into his image. So we participate in a meal with one another that Christ intentionally modeled for us where on the night when Jesus was betrayed, He took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Probably easier than me. And said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and then he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we look to participate in Christ's example of intentional, self-giving love as a community. And so... Uh, how this is going to work is we're going to dismiss you by rows uh, as you do it. Uh, Someone with a lightsaber is going to guide you. I believe it is a lightsaber. Does it light up? It does. Wonderful. Love lightsabers. Uh, We're going to dismiss by rows. They're going to serve you down here and then just circle around and that's how we're going to do it.